Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Well, sometimes we just have to go back to the fundamentals. When we get the fundamentals wrong, things just don't work like they're supposed to. Athletes know this. Professional golfers sometimes lose their swing. World-class golfers. And they go back to their teacher. They say, what am I doing wrong? Well, you're getting away from the fundamentals. The very first things that they were taught, somehow they began to drift. And it's the same way with us in our Christian walk. We have to stay connected to our fundamentals. And those are the things that sometimes we get messed up on. I would say throughout this entire series on the Sermon on the Mount, it's about getting back in touch with the fundamentals. It's about the ABCs of what it really means to love God and to serve Him, what He expects of us. And I think sometimes we get a little ragged around the edges on those things. I don't think that there's anything more fundamental than what we're going to address today, today, and it's called the golden rule. Everybody knows what the golden rule is, whether you've had an extensive church background or not. We've heard that because it's just crept into our culture. And here, getting into this seventh chapter of Matthew, and the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount behind us, we're closing in on the last few verses of this series, but I, I, we actually come to one of the most important verses in Christianity, in the teachings of Christ. And I'll be honest with you, This one single verse, the 12th verse of Matthew chapter 7, I thought, well, that'll make one point for a sermon. But as I developed this, it made the only point for the entire sermon. So here we're going to make very little progress today as we're going through this chapter as far as eating up uh, verses. But we've got a lot to share with you. So here we go. So in Everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now the brevity of this little command belies its huge significance to us. It's such a simple statement. It's something we are taught from the time that we are just at the earliest age, in different various forms, but you as parents, or even reflecting back on your own childhood, you know how many times that that concept has been used as a teaching tool for children. You say to your child, now how would you like it if somebody hit you? See, that's the essence of the golden rule. How would you like it if somebody took that from you? They're invoking the concept, the principle of the golden rule. But the importance of this, not only can we see in how deeply it has embedded and baked itself in to our culture, But the importance of this actually comes on the last part of that that people never quote when they quote the golden rule. Do unto others 
as you would have them do unto you. But then Jesus said this, that gives all the weight and the authority to the golden rule. Because he says, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And you have to understand the significance of that phrase, the law and the prophets, as far as Judaism was concerned, that was everything. The law, of course, was written. The prophets spoke the truths of God. What else was there for them? The law and the prophets. And Jesus said, you can take all of that, every message the prophets ever preached, every line of the law written in the Torah, and you can hang them all on the framework of this one thing, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Then there's this other parallel passage that goes along with this. If if there's any other passage in the Bible that is fundamental to our Christian walk, it's the one in Matthew 22 where Jesus answers the question about what is the greatest commandment. And he says, you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then you know what he said then? On this, hang all the law and the prophets. There's two statements that he says everything suspends from these two concepts. So the golden rule and the Jesus creed, which we'll call the second one, are those two that are parallel, and they hold everything about Christianity together. They hold everything about what it means to love God and serve God. So if anybody is under the mistaken notion that it's just entirely too complicated and too difficult to serve God, I want to reduce this down to its simplest state. Love God, love others. And in loving others, treat others like you want to be treated. You may notice, if you got a handout of the notes today, the title of my sermon is, Would You Just Listen to Yourself? And I'm going to have to explain that, lest anybody here misinterprets what I'm trying to say and then tries to make an issue out of it. We listen to ourselves inasmuch that our self is worth listening to. Okay? Because if you're not worth listening to, don't listen to yourself. But it is... It is assumed that if you are in right relationship with God, if your heart's right, then listen to yourself because we're really talking about listen to the voice of God speaking to your conscience. Listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And that's what I mean when I say, would you just listen to yourself? It doesn't exclude God. It very much includes God. So here we are suspending the the entire Torah and all the prophets from the Golden Rule and from the Jesus Creed, making it the keystone of our entire faith. And nothing works if the Golden Rule doesn't work for us. It summarizes everything we know about serving God. And we love reductionism. When somebody rambles on and on, what we want to do is say, would you get to the point? Reduce this down for me. I don't want 30 minutes. I want a one-minute synopsis. Just reduce it down. So that's what Jesus has done. All these things he's spoken for, for uh, so far in the Sermon on the Mount. He now comes to a point and says, you know what, guys, it's really very simple. And he reduces this down and says, this is what the law, this is what the prophets is really all about. Because the law had a lot of regulations, ways that you had to conduct yourself, things you had to do in order to please God. But what it really was, was those are the things that you would do if you loved God. And so he said, here's the way it is. Love God and love others. 
treat others the way you want to be treated. Now we can get our brain around that. And James has a verse in his book that summarizes very much the same thing. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, if you really, really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and that's where he's alluding to it, it all comes down to this. The law, the prophets, it all comes down to this. If you really keep the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. And then Paul understood that concept, and, and he uh, reinforced that as well in his writings. He, in the book of Romans, there's two passages of Scripture, verses 9 and 10 in the 13th chapter, where he says, Now the command, commandments say, Do not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And you know, we've got this Ten Commandments. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Only ten, but it seems so overwhelming to us, doesn't it? To go through a day or a week or a month of our life and think, I'm going to make it this long and never break a commandment. And we fail. Thou shall not covet. Well, you know, that can happen in your mind. Jesus just told us in the Sermon on the Mount, thou shalt not commit adultery. But if you thought about it, he said, you're guilty. So we're overwhelmed. How can we even abide by ten commandments? So Paul starts off with this. He, he just reels off a few of them. Okay, here's the commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And he said, and whatever other commandment there may be, he said, they're all summed up in one commandment. Let's just get, let's just get it as simple as we can. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said it. James said it. Paul said it, the 10th verse, he says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Treat others like you want to be treated. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he wrote to the Galatians, and he said something similar. He said, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that should be ample witness and testimony for us to realize that we overly complicate what it means to love God and to serve Him. It's a little bit intimidating thinking about, I'm going to turn my life over to God. I'm going to live for Him. I don't know what all He's going to expect me to do. Just love Him. Just love your neighbor and treat people like you ought to be treated. Unless you're a sick individual and you don't like to be treated well. And that's what we're going to deal with in point number two. Talking about this concept of love of self. And when Jesus makes this love of yourself the center point of both the golden rule and the Jesus creed, the golden rule, do unto others like you want people to to do unto you. Well, you got some sick individuals that hit me. Please hit me. Beat me up. I love it. Cut me. Kill me. Because they've been so perverted in their life. They don't know what self-respect is. And then, of course, the Jesus Creed. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are people that are so in love with themselves that they are unable to love others. They're so self-absorbed, they don't have any room left for anybody else. And you have to understand there's this huge difference between being full of oneself and truly having a healthy, godly respect for oneself. Jesus makes our treatment of ourselves our basis for our treatment of others But he's not advocating self-importance or egotism in doing that. Now, the second concern is that there are people who hate themselves so much that they're too broken to truly know how to love others. So for these two extreme examples, they love themselves too much and they hate themselves too much, it's hard for those people to understand the concept of love others like you love yourself. It's hard for them to have a proper... uh, Uh, balance in do to others as you want others to do to you because they're they're sick in their self-assessment. Now, it all begins with me. 
Jesus appeals to my treatment of myself as the standard of my behavior of how I treat others. And I'm going to go back to the other, the Jesus Creed, which I told you I'd return to in, in just a few minutes ago. And it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So he said that twice, hasn't he? Repeating the golden rule. And everything, do to others what you would have them to do, for this sums up the law and the prophets. It's so easy. It's so easy. Why do we complicate this? So by Jesus' own admission, these two summary statements serve as the foundation for everything it takes to love God and serve him and please him. That's assuming we have a healthy perspective of self. That is assuming our heart is right with God. That is assuming, lest there's anybody who wants to nitpick this sermon and the way I'm presenting it, that's assuming that you have come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord, that you've given all to him. Then, with that healthy spiritual condition and that healthy perspective, you can then appeal to self in how you love your neighbor and how you treat your neighbor. Now, here's five things I'm going to list for you that are valuable, imperative, that we have within ourselves to have a healthy heart and a healthy assessment of ourselves. First of all, it is absolutely vital that we have the virtue of honesty. I have to realize I need God. That's an honest assessment. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, pick on Donald Trump a little bit this morning because he, I think he left himself wide open for this. And I, I, don't, I don't care how you feel about him. That's not the point. The, I think the point that is interesting for us to talk about is this is the man that made an issue out of he says most people don't know I'm a Presbyterian which in his lingo meant I'm a Christian and so the question was asked of him uh, about have you asked forgiveness of sins and he said I, I, I don't know I don't think so I don't I don't know that I have to I've never done anything wrong now like him or hate him let's just analyze what represents maybe a mentality of a lot of people. When they're confronted with, you have to be honest enough to realize you need a Savior. And he's not alone in misunderstanding that it's not about doing good things or being basically a nice person. It's about understanding that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the reason... More people are not reaching out to God and finding Jesus Christ and, and confessing Him as their personal Savior is they don't realize they're lost. They don't realize that we have failed in God's eyes. As miserably we have failed. We have fallen short of the glory of God, which it, really the way that verse should read to help us understand what it means, we've fallen short of what He expects of us. That's what that really means. And people are relying on their own self-assessment. Well, I'm basically a nice person. I haven't been mean to anybody. I have the same faults and failures as everybody else, but it's no worse than anyone. Why do I need a Savior? Because we're infected with the sin nature. And the sin nature ultimately forces us to make decisions and do things and say things that do not please God. And there's no cure for that except create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. The work of the Lord to make a heart brand new and give us a fresh new start and to forgive us of our failures. So we have to have honesty in our heart. I need God. I'm broken. 
And I can do nothing without him. I have to find redemption. I have to find spiritual healing through God. That's an honest assessment of my condition. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It means I'm a lost person. It doesn't mean people hate me. They may love me very much. Uh, some people. But it does mean that I have to be reconciled with God. And the only way to do that is accept the fact that his son died for me, took my place. I was guilty, but the one who was not guilty took my place. And I have to accept him as my substitute sacrifice to appease God. Number two, we need a good dose of humility. Having redemption through Jesus Christ, we have to understand our basic worth. And remember that our worth is only through Jesus Christ. Apart from him, what worth do I have? I mean, whenever the Bible says that uh, while we were yet sinners, he still loved us. How much is that worth? When, when the Bible says that uh, we, are, we are born and shapen in iniquity, we have to understand there's a, there's a humility here that I didn't start off with an advantage. I started off with a disadvantage. I started off with the nature of sin that I inherited from Adam. Now, uh, let me take just a minute to explain this nature of sin. Those who remember back on our Romans Bible study when we first came will all be already be familiar with this, but let's just go back and pick that up again. I'm not a sinner. Bec- I'm not guilty because Adam and Eve failed you're not guilty because of anybody else's failure what i am is i am infected with a weakness because adam and eve gave that to us they gave us the propensity for wrongdoing it was passed down like through spiritual genetics they failed therefore it guarantees that i am weak and i will eventually fail and I have failed, and every person will. So I'm not paying for Adam and Eve's sin. I've just inherited weakness, and I will sin. And you will sin, and you have sinned. That's humility. Number three, we need security to have a good self-assessment. I love the song we sang for a short while here at Westside. I know who I am. Insecurity keeps you from achieving your fullest potential in Christ. Insecurity means you don't know who you are. But I like that. I know who I am. I mean, if you you are saved, redeemed through Jesus Christ, you have an identity with Him, you have the comfort and peace of knowing who you are. There's security. Emotional security in knowing that. But without him, people struggle in finding their identity. Who am I? What's my purpose in life? And they're very insecure. And I'm here to, to reveal to you a dirty little secret. Not just of mine, but of yours. And that is... Almost all of us wrestle with insecurity to some degree. Now that the truth is out, we can deal with it. One would think that the most outgoing, uninhibited, demonstrative extrovert is the most secure person. But sadly, many people just use that as a cover-up for their insecurities. Everybody knows Robin Williams. He'd come into a room and mess everything up. Frenetic. Did you know on a personal level, in a private uh, life, he was horribly shy? He couldn't hardly look a person in the eye and have a normal conversation. He would stare at the ground. He was commonly seen in his hometown out around the Bay Area in California, a very calm, a very quiet, 
a very bashful person that uh, would talk to people, but he would talk with his head down. He had to get in his character to be this wild and crazy and zany person. But that's just to show you that oftentimes people use things like that to cover up gross insecurities that they have. Insecurity might be one of the most powerful secret weapons in hell's arsenal. I I hope that maybe there is somebody here today that you are so secure that you you like that song, I Know Who I Am, and, and you are not bashful or shy or uncomfortable with how God has made you. You don't care if your face is not fashioned just like the world thinks that perfection should be. You don't care if there's, there's features about your body that are not perfect. You don't care. You just don't care. You love who you are. God made you. I am who I am. I know who I am in Jesus Christ. And you are a healthy and wonderful person. But most of us have insecurities. We look in the mirror and we think, how can people stand to look at me? We question the size and the shape of our body and, and, and all of these things. And, uh, and we think, if I could just be normal, well, what's normal? So we have these tremendous insecurities. We don't think we're as smart as other people. We don't think we're as comely, as beautiful, as handsome as other people. We don't think we're as talented as other people. And hell taunts us, causing us to question our self-worth. And here's one. Hell torments us with memories of our past failures and prods us just to hang our head in perpetual shame for what we have done. Deep insecurity is why people... Fear to take a chance to step outside their comfort zone because they don't want to be embarrassed by being where they're not comfortable. They don't want to be embarrassed by failure. They don't want to be laughed at. So we're reserved because we've got these insecurities. Deep insecurity is why people sell themselves short instead of realizing their full potential of what God wants them to be and what they can be. But they're insecure. I see insecurities in people all the time. I see the insecurities in children that we work with the children on Wednesday night. And you try and get them to do something and they're just scared to do it. And you know they can. You encourage them to step out, but they're scared. They're insecure. Afraid they'll fail. Afraid somebody will laugh at them. Deep insecurity is why young girls marry the first man who shows them some attention. Because somehow they've become convinced they'll miss their opportunity. That they're not good enough to deserve a good man. They'll take whoever will have them. Insecurity is why we never let people see our serious side. Because we don't want them to know us that well. Insecurity is why we don't want people to know who we really are down deep inside. Insecurity. Is why somebody like Tammy Faye Baker loaded herself up with clownish makeup because there was something about her that was real that she didn't want to have to deal with. So she'll become something else every day of her life. Insecurity is why young people go through extreme body modifications because they're not happy like they are. They need the attention. They need something. They need something because they are not happy. Insecurity. is why we go in debt to own things we can't afford. Just to appear to be something we're not. Insecurity is why Miley Cyrus ventures further and further into insane absurdity with every passing month because she's not happy with who she is. She's constantly trying to figure out who she is and become something else. And nothing satisfies the insecurity. Is why people will join the crowd racing into hell instead of following God with the minority 
into heaven. And how in the world, people, can we fulfill the Jesus creed or the golden rule of loving our neighbor as ourself or treating others like we want to be treated if we've got all these insecurities that are just destroying us? We don't have a healthy perspective of ourselves. Number four, respect. We have to learn how to respect ourselves. You have to learn what it means to love yourself as a child of God. You have to learn what it means to value the fact you are redeemed and you've been given a new hope and a new life. You have to learn what it means to respect your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think we're losing that in this day and age. I think we're losing the concept Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? I think we're forgetting that. They think it's their body to play with, to do with as they want, to destroy any way they want to destroy it. No respect. No respect for themselves. No respect for their body as a gift from God. The enemy wants you to focus on your failures, your weaknesses, your faults, and God wants you to glorify Him with your body and your soul and your mind. And the trick of the enemy is to defeat you by taunting you every day. You're ugly, you're stupid, you're different, you're substandard. Everybody else is better than you in some way. I'm here to tell you, Satan is a liar. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God loves you just like you are, and He's trying to get you to love you just like you are. Don't buy into that garbage. You are precious in God's sight. You are a child of the King. You are worth so much to Him that He died for you he took your place he spared you you are priceless to god and with a healthy christ-centered mind a healthy biblical worldview a healthy god-centered self-esteem now we can begin to safely measure our treatment of others by ourselves by our treatment of ourselves we can now begin to gauge how we should treat others Because that's the way we would want to be treated. But if you haven't got that healthy self-esteem rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ, you can't perform even the most fundamental ABCs of Christianity. And that is, treat others like you want to be treated. Your mind's going to be all messed up. Now let's put the rule into practice. First, notice the positive aspect of the golden rule. Do unto others. The concept of the golden rule has been around for a long time. Even the concept predated when Jesus spoke those words. But the most popular version of it was the negative. It's found in the negative throughout history. Don't do anything to others that you would not want them to do to you. Well, you know how you fulfill that? By doing nothing. But Jesus put it in the positive. That means it takes doing something to fulfill it. Not just avoiding mistreating people. That's the cheesy way out. But actively doing something for somebody because you say in your heart, I would like it if somebody did like that for me. Now it's active. That's the reason Jesus stated it in the positive form. It calls us to action. It makes me responsible to execute good and godly and right things on my neighbor. It's not just enough not to commit murder because in the negative, don't murder anybody because you don't want them to murder you. So it's not enough for me to say I'm not a murderer. God wants to know, but what did you do for them that you would want them 
to do for you. Oh, I've got a long list of those things. And so now I find myself obligated. I know a lot of things I'd like for people to do for me. Now I've got to get busy. One popular campaign in the past decade. How many of you ever got one of those little wristbands or a T-shirt or a headband or something uh, that said, uh, what would Jesus do? WWJD. How many of you got one of those? Yeah, that was very popular, wasn't it? All right. We're going to, we're going to revise the motto. WWJD was nice. Jesus suggested a better one. W-W-I-W. That's the new one, okay? What would I want? Now, what would Jesus do is fine, but when you get in touch with your heart and your mind that has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, you have instant feedback. You don't have to ask the question, let me see, what would Jesus do? I'm not sure what he would do. Let me go talk to the pastor. Maybe he know what, knows what Jesus would do. Get your friends, call them up. You know, I'm facing this problem. What would Jesus do? I don't know. Maybe he would do this. You know what? Let's cut right to the chase. What do you, what do you want? What would I want? Because it's this immediate feedback in life. You know what you would want. And especially now that you're in tune with Jesus Christ, that's the immediate standard for how I'm going to behave. In other words, I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. I don't have to make this supposition about what would Jesus do if he was in my position. What do you want? You who are redeemed by Jesus Christ. You who have had a new heart made by him. You who have your heart has been made sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You know right now what you would want. Kind of cuts right to the chase, doesn't it? How do I love my neighbor? Well... What would I appreciate my neighbor doing for me? How am I supposed to mistreat those who mistreat me? Well, how do you want to be treated? Instant answer. Wouldn't it be nice if you came home and found the snow had already been scooped off your driveway by your neighbors? Well, now you know what you're supposed to go home and do. You're supposed to go scoop the snow off your neighbor's drive because you just admitted how nice that would be. That's how you treat them. But here's the clincher. The golden rule is not about reciprocating favors. It's about initiating actions without expectation of anything return. In other words, you can't manipulate this and say, oh... If I do good things to others, they will in turn come back and do good things to you. Not always. I've had them bite my hand off. You try something good and they turn on you. And you come and say, Pastor, it doesn't work. Oh, yes, it does. That's the way it's supposed to work sometimes. It's supposed to be about you doing good regardless of what they do because the basis is not if they do it for me. The basis is, that's what I would want them to do. And it's going to look like it doesn't work sometimes for you. But if you've done the right thing based on the fact that you know that would be something you would appreciate, it worked. And you don't know what kind of a seed you planted there. Sometimes you treat others like you want to be treated. And they just become all the more hateful. What we're talking about is you're supposed to be standing clean before the Lord. Not what you are supposed to do to change others. Just what you're supposed to do knowing in your heart that's a good thing. That's a blessed thing. That's a right thing. And then... We have to answer the question, others, do unto others. Well, who is this others? Like the man who came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And, of course, he's looking for loopholes. Well, who's my neighbor? 
others? I'm looking for loopholes here. Who's others? Well, others begins with those that are closest to us. And it expands outward from there to infinity. In other words, others means treat your spouse the way you want your spouse to treat you. And they may not treat you back the same way. But you have a moral obligation every time you have an interaction with your spouse to have this evaluation. Is that what I want them to do to me? If it's not, you've missed the mark, my friend. It applies others are your children. Treat your children like you would want to be treated. We can be such clumsy parents because in God's design, it's on-the-job training. We don't get 12 years of school to learn how to raise kids. We just get kids and say, good luck. And we practice on them. And it is a miracle they come out sane. The things we do to them, the head games we play, the way we bully them, the way that sometimes we make them, we reduce them down to a piece of dirt by the way we talk to them and, and bemean them and belittle them. And, and if we could just get a hold, no wonder Jesus said everything about serving God comes down to something very simple, just do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. If we could go back and have a redo, how many of you parents here today can agree with me if I could just have a redo on raising my kids? My hand's up. Those of you who didn't lift your hands, I'm going to give you a few years. You'll be looking for a redo. Best thing you can do right now is go home and gather the kids together and repent. Let them know I've done my best, but I didn't do very good. But I just learned something new today at church. Do unto others. You'd have them do unto you. And with God's help, I'm going to try and apply that to my kids and my wife, my spouse. And then others is your neighbor. Others is that waiter. Or that waitress at the restaurant that you're not happy with the service. Treat them the way you want to be treated. Or I'll come look you up. Treat them. Others is the other drivers that you're sharing the road with. That road is not yours. Treat them. The way you want to be treated. Let them get in line when it's merging. You would want that. I know you would. Others is your church family. You know how many fights and skirmishes have happened in churches because we did not Hold to the fundamentals of do unto others like you would want them to do to you. There's not been a fight or a skirmish or a squabble in church that could not have been resolved by people backing up and saying, I want to treat you the way I want you to treat me. Troubles are over! That's the reason I say the fundamentals, we stray from them and we mess up so bad that here we are almost on kindergarten day here at church saying we're going to go back to the ABCs of Christianity. Just treat others like you want to be treated. It'll put your family back together. It'll put your church back together. It'll put your neighborhood back together. It'll put Christianity back together. Treat them like you want to be treated. Others, 
you happen to work with others at your workplace. Others are your boss. Others are your fellow workers. Now, if you are a boss, if you are a supervisor, if you are a manager, if you are a tyrant, then you need to treat others like you want to be treated. Because power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And people get a hold of a little bit of power and they turn into wild maniacs. They're just fine to work with, but they are horrible to work for. A little bit of power. There was, a, there was a lady who coached the boys' basketball team in one of the towns we lived in, and she was very good as a coach as far as understanding the game, managing the game, managing the time clock, teaching the skills. She was very, very good, but she had horrible people skills. And I sat in one of the practices and saw how she demeaned and belittled and ridiculed the players. And actually came to one point where she picked up a basketball and threw it at the head of one of her players. Who was a little bit mentally, a little bit slower than the others. Had some basketball skills, could have been used on the team, but he was a little bit slower and it just frustrated her. And she picked up a basketball and threw it at her. You know, <clears throat> I talked to her. I had a meeting with her and her response was, you have to break them down. Before you can build them back up again. Now, we, this is a basketball team. This is not the Marines. And I said, I wholeheartedly disagree with your assessment of how to lead these kids. I know them. It's a small town. As I can tell you right now, somebody beat you to it. They're already broken down. I know the homes they come from. I know the split parents. I know the troubles that they're in. They are broken down. You don't have to do that. It's done for you. They need somebody that can pick them up and put them back together again. I worked for a man in Alabama who taught me carpentry. He's a good carpenter, brilliant carpenter, no people skills. And I put up with it because I worked for him. But we went together on a missionary trip down to Ciudad Victoria, Old Mexico, built a church down there. And they made him the foreman. And it was just a, a bunch of volunteers and a, a lot of preachers down there. And I saw how he began to abuse the preachers and the volunteers and the people, the workers that came down there, abruptly ordering them around and telling them to come along and just rip something out they had built and said, do it right next time. And he's just offending everybody. So now I was no longer his employee. I was his pastor. And it felt real good that I could serve in a new role. And I said, we're going to have a talk. I took him, took him over. And I said, uh, you know what? You keep up and you're going to build this building all by yourself because everybody's going to load up and leave old Mexico and you behind. And he said, but I'm the foreman. I said, these are volunteers. They are doing the best they know how. And if you don't find a way to encourage them and appreciate them, they won't work for you anymore. And I said, and I'll tell you what. I was, I was driving the van. I said, I'm about a heartbeat away from crawling in that van and going back home. You can find your own way. Well, he got a big old tears in his eyes. I don't know if it's because he was convicted or because he wasn't going to have a ride home. And, well, I'm sorry. I don't know. I said, well, get your act together. Now, I had to go back and be his employee next week. But right now is my call. You know, you, you know people like that. 
you've probably had to work for some people like that. They don't have any tact. They just think all they got to do is just be a bully and boss you around. But you know what I like? I, I like John Wooden, coach. Remember John Wooden, the coach? Such a gentle man. And uh, I believe it was um, Bill Walton that told of being under uh, uh, John Wooden as the coach. And, and uh, he had a rule, a good Christian man. He had a rule. He said, you know what, you're, you're, going to, you're not going to wear any beards and, and facial hair. You're going to come in here and have your hair cut and have a clean face. And, and uh, Bill Walton came up to his coach, and, and he told him this was in college. He said, Coach, he said, uh, he said uh, I'm not going to shave my beard. He said, it's a matter of principle. I believe I have a right to wear that. And John Wooden said, I appreciate a man of strong convictions. We're going to miss you around here. He went and shaved his face and came back and played. Now, you know, there's a way of managing people. Without turning them into objects, without being a tyrant, without being a bully, without humiliating and one of the worst ways to motivate people is to humiliate them. That doesn't motivate. It might get the job done, but they're going to despise you. And it certainly doesn't fit Jesus' directive. Treat others the way you want to be treated. You want to be humiliated? Then stop it. Stop it. This is the ABCs of Christianity, and we get, we get away from that in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our family, in our church. We have to get away from it, and it's a, it's a mess. On the other end of the coaching spectrum was Bobby Knight. Oh, you know him. That volatile, explosive coach from Indiana University, famous for his fits of anger, throwing chairs, getting in the face of his players and screaming at them, and getting physically aggressive, going crazy, treating his players like dirt, and being fired for slapping, pushing, getting physically aggressive with his players. And I think too many people have picked up on the school of Bobby Knight leadership. And they have forgotten the Jesus method. You get Christ in your heart. W-W-I-W. What, I, what would I want? Love your neighbor as yourself. Make your heart right with Christ. And would you listen to yourself? Do unto others. You should have them do to you. This sums up everything about the law and the prophets. Would you bow your heads?